When we went to the Capitol, we were there to deliver a message based upon our understanding of what racism is and how it's inflicted upon us in our communities here in America and deliver this message to the world that we must arm ourselves, that we are in imminent danger, that the concentration camps in Tule Lake in Arizona and Oklahoma are now being rejuvenated, reset up for us, and we will defend ourselves. The examiner made a report back here in the last Sunday's paper that we were anti-white, that we hold no bones, this is a quote, hold no, pick no bones about being anti-white. This is a bold-faced lie. We don't hate nobody because of their color. We hate oppression. We hate murder of black people in our communities. We hate the gross unemployment that exists in our communities. We hate black men being taken off into the military service to be fighting for our greatest decadent American prominence as freedom. In the Civil War, 186,000 black men fought in the military service, and we were promised freedom, and we didn't get it. In World War II, 350,000 black men fought, and we were promised freedom, and we didn't get it. In World War II, 850,000 black men fought, and we were promised freedom, and we didn't get it. In the Korean conflict, the so-called police action, a war, we fought there, and we didn't get it. Now, here we go with the damn Vietnam War, and we still ain't getting nothing but racist police brutality, etc. What's going on, everyone? What's going on? It is Chase. We are back with another episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. We stand against oppression at this podcast. This is Black History Month. We are exploring the titans of African-American history. Black history is every day, right? We can't just contain it to February, but while we're in February, we're going to go after it. We're going to get after it. We're going to research. We're going to dig a little deeper than a fifth grade social studies project. All right. So who are we talking about? We've been talking about the Black Panther Party, and we will continue to talk about the Black Panther Party. All right. Stay tuned. There's more coming. Ape. Okay, we're back here. We're here, guys. We're here. We're here. All right, it's time to get down to business. <laughs> All right, we're going to do our housekeeping stuff right now. I'm not going to forget this time, okay? So, first things first, please, 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 I beg you, turn on your post notifications. Do you know why? Because when you guys are watching your anime shows, you'll hear a bing, and when you hear that, and you see a.p.e on your banner on the top of your screen on your smartphone, you'll know that another episode is streaming right now. Okay? You'll know. Also, we have multiple social media platforms, okay? We have Instagram. We actually have two Instagram accounts. We have the main account, which just, well, I want to call it the main account, but we have the uh, teaching account slash meme account 
slash his cool overall stuff account, Ape Academy, right? At Ape Academy. We also have the nitty gritty, the knowledge, the educational, the dropping jewels at Ape Academy Podcast, okay? On Instagram. We're on Twitter at A underscore defensive. We are on Facebook, A.P.E. Actually, it's not even dot. This Ape Defensive Solutions on TikTok. We haven't gotten any traction, but we're going to keep doing it. TikTok at Ape Academy Podcast. Also, I want to give a big shout out to all you guys, all the listeners, both internationally and domestically. Shout out to Russia. Shout out to Denmark. Shout out to Africa. Shout out to all the areas of the world who are listening to this great podcast. We stand against oppression. We stand for knowledge and truth. Facts above feelings. Facts above ignorance. There's no room for ignorance at the Ape Academy podcast. We will tell you guys about facts. Everything is researched. Everything is vetted. Okay? There's no conspiracy theorists that I'm using as sources. There is no whack job website out of someone's basement, out of their mama's basement that I'm using for reference. This is real scholarly stuff. It's all vetted. It's all has primary sources, either from interviews, newspaper articles, actual events, speeches, treaties, manuscripts. You get my drift? Okay, so we're back at it. What's today's podcast entitled Oakland Boys? Oakland Boys. All right, we are being introduced to Bobby Seal and Mr. Huey P. Newton. Okay, that's who we're being introduced to. Now, the source is Black Against Empire. Black Against Empire, the world inherit inherited by the Black Panther Party. The history and politics of the Black Panther Party. Huey P. Newton reader as well. Okay, we got two sources. Those are two scholarly sources. Actually, the Huey P. Newton reader, I have listened to and read most, if not all, of Mr. Huey P. Newton's philosophies, his theories, his, his short manuscripts. I've listened to his speeches, all right, his debates. So I know this, I feel like I know him, you know what I mean? He's a hero of mine, honestly. Um, same thing with Bobby. Bobby Seal is a little bit better spoken than Huey. Uh, he's, he's more eloquent with how he uh, portrays his, his thoughts. But they are both very, very, very powerful intellectual thinkers. And they have a lot of good stuff to contribute to everybody, not just black people. The Black Panther Party was not just for African Americans. They were against any oppressed people. They were the leaders in the gay, lesbian, and uh, women's freedom movements. They were key in the movements to help workers, right? The workers, the, the laborers, the unemployed, the underemployed. They were against the Vietnam War. And of course, you know, everyone knows that they were big black liberation theorists, okay? They believed in protecting the African-American community 
from oppression, from police brutality, etc. Building up the community with the grassroots organizations from the ground up. We're going to talk about that today. I love this stuff. It's great stuff. It's history. It's facts over feelings. Let's start with Mr. Huey P. Newton. Huey P. Newton was born into a big family as the youngest of seven on February 17, 1942 in Monroe, Louisiana, to Walter and Amelia Newton. Walter Newton, he exemplified the hardworking, religious, southern black father of his era. He held down multiple jobs most of the time, right? More than one job, two or three jobs. He worked at the gravel pit, the carbon plant, a sugarcane mill, sawmills, and eventually landed a really good steady job as a brakeman for the Union Sawmill Company. On Sundays, he put on yet another hat, serving as the head minister at Bethel Baptist Church in Monroe, where he settled with his loving family. Mr. Newton preached passionately as the Holy Spirit moved him, often promising to address certain topics. If y'all have ever been to a black church, you know what I'm talking about, all right? They start off, oh, I promise I won't be long. You're, you're there three hours later, you're looking at your watch like, I'm missing a football game, right? <laughs> he often promised to start on certain topics, and suddenly he veered off course and improvised an inspirational sermon suited perfectly for that very moment in time. When he wasn't working or preaching, Mr. Newton spent his time with family, the center of his life, and his purpose for being. They are what motivated him to continue working hard and to keep the dedication and the passion alive to keep his family afloat. His wife, Armelia Johnson, she married Walter Young. She was only 17 when she gave birth to her first child. The other siblings followed in quick succession. But what, what made Amelia very, very unique for African-American women of that time, so we're talking the 30s and the 40s, was her status as a, quote, stay-at-home mom and wife. She didn't work, and this was very, very rare at the time. Usually, believe it or not, contrary to what these uh, Fox News and these popular news outlets would tell you, the black home there was a time where the black home, the black family was intact. Most, most of the time, right, both parents worked and held down steady jobs, and they had to do this because their wages were much lower than their white peers. So they had to work double, triple jobs, right? Anything they had to do to keep food on the table and a roof over their head, all right? She didn't work, though. Amelia did not work. She stayed at home raising the kids and creating beautiful memories with her growing family. This was extremely rare. This was common for white families, but not very common for black ones. Most women in the South during the 1930s and the 1940s worked as domestics, nannies, housekeepers, or cooks for white families. According to Mr. Monroe, quote, oh, this is what he believed. Quote, the Newton family saw Amelia's not working as a domestic servant for whites as an act of rebellion. That's really interesting. So to them, her not working for a white family was actually a rebellious act, an act that said, look, we don't need your handouts. My husband's got it. We're holding, that, we're holding down the fort, and we don't need your charity, right? So 
Rebel blood ran in young Huey's veins from a very, very early age. One of Walter Newton's favorite sayings was, quote, you can take a killing, but you can't take a beating. <laughs> Sounds like a black dad right there. Occasionally, Walter would get into heated arguments with his younger white boss, which normally would be disastrous for Southern blacks. Black folks were expected to stay in their place or risk being labeled as an uppity nigger. The white man told Walter that when a, quote, colored questioned him, he whipped him. Mr. Newton replied forcefully that no man would whoop him unless he was a better man, and he doubted that the white man fit the bill. <laughs> That's pretty dope. The man was shocked speechless at this uncharacteristic response and backed down immediately. This encounter was just one, just one example of Walter Newton standing up for himself as a proud black man. This defiance in most situations would have gotten a black man lynched. He, but he developed a reputation of being, quote, crazy. So whites made sure to stay away. And this gave him an almost mystical respect and admiration among his black community. Walter Newton's astounding ability to stand up for himself and to stay alive is something of a mystery. His youngest son, Huey, he theorized later in life that his father's mixed race status might have played a role. So he was half black, half white. But get this. Here's a caveat. Walter's father was a white man who had raped his black mother. How sad is that? Of course, the man didn't ever meet justice. Thus, local whites knew his father, cousins, aunts, and other blood relatives. This is very significant because if it had been any other black person talking to a white man like that, their life would have been forfeit due to their unwillingness to know their place. But since his father's family was known around town and it was a white family, angry whites may have been reluctant to shed his white family's blood. Wow, that's incredible. Nevertheless, nevertheless, guys, Walter Newton and his family, like many black families at the time, they decided to move in search of greener pastures out west. At the onset of World War II, many job opportunities were available in the shipyards and the industries. Workers were in high demand to fill empty slots, usually filled by deployed soldiers. So normally, right, these jobs would be held by soldiers, but the soldiers were being drafted and they would be sent to Europe and they were being sent to the South Pacific. So there's a lot of openings in these harbors and these shipyards and just in these, these, these plants that would make wartime material, you know, for tanks, for weapons, bullets, uniforms, all type of stuff they were making back then for the troops. Unbeknownst to many black workers, the economic boom proved to be only temporary. The economic explosion was a response to wartime demands only. When the war ended, many blacks were laid off as wartime industry waned and then completely disappeared. Poof, vanished. The results were catastrophic. This is from Black Against Empire. Quote, both new and expanded black communities in cities across the country rapidly sank into poverty. Due to his father's industrious nature and pride in being the sole provider for the family, Huey's family was better off than most of the black families they knew but they were still very, very poor. With seven children to feed and clothe, 
The family often ate meals of kush, a, a dish made of fried cornbread, several times each day. Simply paying the bills on time became a constant struggle for Walter. Thus, the Newton family lived on the edge of desperate poverty. Huey being the youngest of seven, he naturally looked up to his older brother for guidance. Each brother dealt with their situation in a completely different way, as most brothers usually do. You know how anyone with siblings knows, usually each sibling has a very, very distinct personality. But all have had profound influence on young Huey. Quote, Walter Newton Jr., the youngest, became a hustler, working outside the legal channels to keep poverty at bay. He always dressed sharp, and he drove a nice car. Everyone in the neighborhood called him Sunny Man. Lee Edward gained a reputation as a street fighter before joining the military. Huey recalled Lee's remarkable ability to persist in the face of bad odds, this is a quote, and to always look an adversary straight in the eye and to keep moving forward. We see Lee Edwards' influence throughout young Huey's life, especially <laughs> when he was fighting for his life in the courtroom during his first-degree murder trial later down the road, and we'll discuss that a little bit later down the road, all right? Very, very interesting story. His third brother, Melvin Newton, he took a completely different path than his other brothers. He became a nerd, a bookworm, <laughs> and he got admitted into college. And eventually, guess what? He became a professor of sociology at Oakland's Merritt College. Huey P. Newton absorbed the attitudes from all of his brothers, the attitudes and the personalities. He was a hybrid mix of all three brothers, a hustler, a fighter, and, of course, a scholar. Quote, from his, young, from his oldest brother, Lee Edward, and Sonny Man, he mastered the way of the street and learned how to fight. Through his teen years, Huey fought constantly. With Melvin, he memorized and analyzed poetry. So from his two oldest brothers, Lee and Sonny Man, he mastered the way of the streets, street smarts, common sense. He learned how to fight. He learned how to hustle. He learned how to use situational awareness. We talk about that in some of our uh, lessons, right? To stay out of danger. But, you know, Melvin also played a very, very key role. He helped Huey really kind of spark his intellectual side, right? His curiosity with education started with Melvin's mentorship, right? Melvin tutored him. He helped him learn how to read, etc. However, unlike Melvin, this is the main difference between him and Melvin. He was not really a bookworm. For years, he rebelled in school. He hated school. He hated being told what to do, and he always acted out. And by the time he entered 11th grade, he still could not read. And his teachers often called him dumb and slow. Unknown to his ignorant teachers, Huey had been learning to think outside the box, outside of school. With Melvin's help, young Huey began studying poetry, philosophy, and sociology. When a counselor rudely told Huey he was simply, sorry man, you're just not college material, Huey made it his mission to prove this man wrong. Over the next two years, Huey, through intense will and focus, taught himself how to read graduated high school, and in 1959, enrolled himself in Merritt College. That's where his brother went. By the time Huey became involved in the Afro-American Association at Merritt College, he could debate theory as well as the most eloquent of his peers. What made, but what made him different from his bookworm classmates was that Huey was tuned into the streets. He never, 
ever abandoned his street smarts or his street connections or his street credibility. He could understand and relate to the plight of the, quote, brothers on the block. And he could also relate to the growing ranks of the unemployed and underemployed who lived on the fringes of society. Newton's street knowledge put him through college. Theft and fraud funded his education. But when he was eventually caught, and he was always caught, <laughs> he used his sharp wit and book knowledge to study the law inside and out, and he always defended himself at trial in court. So this man, get this. So this man teaches himself how to read in the 11th grade. Then he gets into, graduates and gets into college. Then he uses theft and fraud and criminal activity, you know, petty crime, to pay his tuition. While he's doing this, he's getting caught, right? He's getting caught here and there. You know, they'll arrest him. He'll go to jail. He'll have to go on trial. He always defended himself. He never used a lawyer. He memorized the California Penal Code. Like, he could recite just as well as any attorney all the statutes, all the laws, all the small nuances of the law to get him off. And that's absolutely incredible. His intimate knowledge of legal procedures and his insistence on understanding his constitutional rights impressed juries and judges alike. And this allowed him to defeat several misdemeanor charges. Oakland boys, Oakland boys. Huey P. Newton met Bobby Seale in 1962 at an informal debate following a rally at Merritt College. The rally was opposing the U.S. blockade of Cuba. The two young students would later, they would found the Black Panther Party together. The rally, though, featured Mr. Donald Warden, and he was the leader of the Afro-American Association. Now, the Afro-American Association was a very, very influential group in California at the time and nationwide, especially among the Black, the black Nationalists movement following the keynote speaker the students broke off into informal debates and in one of these debates newton convinced seal that the u.s policy in cuba was wrong and also made him question mainstream civil rights organizations bobby was blown away and impressed by huey's command of the argument presented by mr e franklin fraser in the book black bourgeoisie a scorching critique of the black middle class that he read with Warden. So Huey was very eloquent um, in his thoughts. Now, he was not the best public speaker, but he was a brilliant, a brilliant thinker and a brilliant mind. Let's talk about Bobby, my boy Bobby. Mr. Bobby Seal was born on October 2nd, 1936, the oldest of three siblings in Oakland, Cali. He was born and raised in Cali. His father worked as a carpenter and his mother also worked, of course, very common at the time. Remember, Huey's mom didn't work, which was uncommon. His mom worked as a caterer. Bobby's dad, Bobby's dad taught him many valuable skills, hunting, fishing, building, and repairing things around the house. But he also taught him about violence. His father beat him badly, often for no apparent reason. These arbitrary beatings filled Bobby with pent-up rage. He had few constructive outlets to take out this rage. This meant he had nothing to fear from fights. He had already experienced much worse at home than he would ever experience in the street. Rather than becoming a bully himself, right, 
as as a lot of these angry kids do when they're when they're when they're bullied at home and beaten at home and abused at home, a lot of times kids will take out their anger on smaller, weaker kids. Bobby didn't do that. He always stood up for the little guy. He always stood up from the underdog, even when he was a small child. Quote, Bobby had a panache for taking on bullies, even when he had little hope of winning. Once challenging a neighborhood kid twice his size who was cheating the smaller kids in marbles, and he was often beaten into the ground. As he aged, as he got older, Bobby became a skilled street fighter, growing into his lean body to become fast and strong. Billy's, uh, Billy's, bullies soon learned to steer clear of the angry kids, the angry kid who stood up for the underdog. Bobby soon joined the U.S. Air Force, where he mastered metalworking skills that he developed and fell in love with as a youth. He also mastered the use of firearms. In the military, he learned how to use his rage, how to channel it into a cold, calculated anger, a cunning. You know how they say, like, sly like a fox? Bobby was sly like a wolf, right? He just, he just funneled that anger. He just turned it into this cold, calculating rage. Quote, when three soldiers refused to pay back a debt and threatened to beat Bobby if he mentioned the matter again, he suppressed his instinct to fight, and he bade his time. He bided his time. Later that week, Bobby attacked the main perpetrator when his defenses were down, nearly killing him with a pipe, end quote. Bobby and Huey were both introduced to politics by Mr. Donald Warden in the Afro-American Association. So they were in school around the same time, and they kind of had the same mentors, right? Warden's Afro-American Association believed in a black nationalist vision, which was inspired by Malcolm X. Malcolm X. This focus on racial pride and embracing an international identity based in the mother country of Africa. Warden believed in black capitalism. He argued that black folks must, quote, develop our own planned businesses where efficiency, thrift, and sacrifice are stressed. What made Warden such a role model for many students was his ability and willingness to debate anyone, anytime, anywhere. And this definitely rubbed off on young Bobby and young Huey. This left a strong impression on fellow students, and he quickly became an important intellectual influence on many future leaders of the black liberation movement. Newton, at first, was enthralled by Warden and his association's powerful message of black independence and pride. But he was impatient. He grew dissatisfied by his lack of action, right? Huey saw the words. He saw the beautiful language. He loved the speeches, but he didn't see any practical change, any practical application to any of it. He was all talk, no action, all rhetoric and fluffy words. In Newton's view, Warden offered, quote, the community solutions that solve nothing. And he also strongly doubted that any real change will be realized through black capitalism. All right. So that's where we're going to stop. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back in a flash. Actually, it's a musical break, but I just like to say commercial. Ape.
all right all right welcome back welcome back from the musical break interlude i hope you guys are enjoying the podcast man i hope you guys are loving it so far i've learned a lot of stuff researching these guys i hope you do too all right the boiling point california explodes right so remember bobby and huey were alive in a very turbulent time in this country i don't think anyone needs to be told that i think anyone who's been listening to this podcast the last few episodes they know that this time period the 1960s early 70s was very very turbulent it was like a freaking just pressure cooker right and we talked the last episode about the brutality and the heavy-handedness of the la county sheriff in the la police department and what happened in 1965 really really changed the game even more so than some of the events previously right because we're talking about the urban ghetto we're talking about people who already feel trapped and when you have a gestapo like police force who preys on the civilians who don't give a crap about them who don't live in the community who don't look anything like the people in the community things can boil over not too different from how it is now with the uh, formation of the Black uh, Lives Matter movement, but police were much, 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 much worse back then than they are now. There's a little bit of accountability now, but back then there was like zero accountability because there were no cameras, no one was, was documenting anything. It was all about witnesses. Usually crowds would gather, right, when there's a, uh, a traffic stop. So here we go. The boiling point. California explodes. Watch California, 9.30 p.m., August 12, 1965. The incident that sparked the Watch Rebellion was supposed to be just a simple traffic stop. 21-year-old Marquette Fry was driving his 1955 Buick along 116th Street near his family's home at 6 p.m. on August 11, 1965, when he was pulled over by a California highway patrolman. His younger brother, Ronald Fry, the only other passenger in the Buick had just been discharged, ironically, right? He was a veteran from the U.S. Air Force. A crowd quickly gathered to observe the situation. The crowd included Marquette's mom, Raina. Soon, backup arrived. More police arrived. By this time, a crowd of 200 or so onlookers had begun to gather, and soon the residents became very agitated as the police reportedly slapped Mrs. Fry, beat her with a blackjack, and twisted her arm behind her back. Watts had had enough. The city exploded. Enough was enough. On August 12, 1965, a group identifying itself as, quote, followers of Malcolm X, arrived on Avalon Boulevard screaming, let's burn, baby, burn. The next day at 3.30 p.m., the emergency control center reported that, quote, six Negroes were firing rifles at helicopter from vehicle on 109th and Avalon. By the second day of the rebellion, according to the LA Times, over 6,000 people were looting stores, stealing guns, machetes, and other weapons. Citizens were throwing Molotov cocktails, firing at police, attacking emergency vehicles, and just spreading general mayhem. During the heat of the battle, police chief Parker declared, quote, this situation is very is much, very much like fighting the Viet Cong. We haven't the slightest idea when this can be brought under control. Ultimately, 
the riot spread out over 46.5 miles. And all told, in the end, when the damage was tallied, 34 people, almost all black, of course, were killed, many by the police, and more than 1,032 were wounded. 3,952 people were arrested. The, the riot caused more than $40 million in property damage to 600 buildings, with over 200 being completely demolished. The rebels were frustrated and fed up. There was no official channels for grievances of the community to be heard and, ad and addressed. There was no way for people to complain. No one cared. If someone pulls you over and your mom's in the car, pulls her out of the car and beats her with a blackjack, you could, there was no one you could go to. You couldn't do anything. If you fought back against the police, you got shot dead. If you tried to, to write a letter to the mayor, no one cared. If you went up to the police department, people would kick you out. There was no way to get justice for any, for any black citizen, especially in California, during this, during this period. The participants of this rebellion sought to take matters into their own hands and they forcibly rejected the old guard, nonviolent preaching leaders of the traditional civil rights movement. So these folks said enough is enough with the turn the other cheek nonsense. Enough is enough with the we shall overcome come singing and holding hands. We want to burn this mother effort to the ground. We have we are sick and tired. And a lot of times. This is what happens in communities that are oppressed continuously with no outlet. Crime is rising. Drug use is rising. There are no jobs. And on top of all their problems being black in America with no money and no economic opportunity and no education, you got the police cracking skulls. Excuse me. You don't have to do anything to get your skull cracked in L.A. And during this time. Remember we talked in the last, in the last episode we talked about some stats from 1962 to 1965. The police in L.A. County and L.A., uh, the city of Los Angeles, they killed 65 people. The police murdered 65 people. 64 were ruled justified. Only one was ruled unjustified, and that was when two police officers were playing around in their station and killed a white newspaper reporter by accident. All right? That was the only unjustified murder by police that was recorded, okay? Out of the 65, 27 were shot in the back. 24 were unarmed. 23 were, uh, were convicted, well, not convicted, suspected of committing a nonviolent crime. Four weren't even armed and weren't even committing a crime when they were shot and killed. So with these statistics, the L.A. were the modern-day version of the Gestapo. The L.A. police officers called their clubs nigger knockers. Nigger knockers. Let that sink in. Imagine if a modern-day police officer was overheard saying, oh, this is, my gun is a, is a nigger cannon, a nigger killer. Man, the department would be torn to pieces. This was common in the 1960s if there's anyone out there who doesn't understand why some people in this country are upset with the killings of George Floyd uh, Philando Castile Trayvon Martin etc etc these were people who did not deserve to die and there's a long history that goes way back to this stuff happening this isn't the first time and I think 
the rage is boiling over. It's at its boiling point. There are people like my grandmother and my mother that are still alive that are still alive that remember when black citizens were harassed, beaten, and killed for no reason. Well, people say, well, he was he must have been doing something wrong. If you disobey the police commands, they'll listen to you. <laughs> okay. That's called privilege. <laughs> when they already when they already suspect you of doing something wrong. You think your words, you think if you obey everything they say is going to matter? I got some stories with that I'll, I'll share next time, all right? I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We just want to do an introduction to Bobby and Huey. I hope you guys have a great rest of the day. This was a short one. We're going to get after it in much more detail next time we talk to you. Love y'all. Stay safe. Put God and your family first. Get after it. Work hard. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do what you want ape out All right, y'all. We're out. See you next time. Peace.